The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is sexuality educator Al Vernaccio. His new book is For Goodness Sex, Changing the Way We Talk to Teens About Sexuality, Values, and Health. Uh, he is a high, he's been a high school teacher for more than 20 years, has been an advocate of a new category, sex-positive education. And so in For Goodness Sex, uh, he refutes the disaster prevention model of sex education, which unfortunately I think most of us are used to, and offers instead a progressive and realistic approach. Um, Al has, uh, is the author uh, of the Psychology Today blog for Goodness Sex, is a TED speaker and has been featured in the New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Al. Thank you, Catherine. I'm so glad to be here. For Goodness Sex. Okay, so you've had a lot of experience with sex, we have to assume, and also with teaching. <laughs> I've had <laughs> a lot of experience to... with sexuality education. <laughs> sexuality education, okay. Um uh, and this is with high school students we're talking about, right? What, 14 to 18? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so for goodness sake, so what is different? I mean, I know that it's, it seems to me that when I listen to, uh, when I listen to professionals um, or, you know, what's out there in terms of literature, it's all about this abstinence-only kind of sex education. And it seems to me that really is what prevails. So yours is a very different approach. What is it? Yes, it is a different approach, and I think that while abstinence can be a value that that can actually be a be a perfectly fine one for for young people, I think when you talk to most adults about their kids, what they actually hope for them someday is that they will be in a sexual relationship and that it will be positive and affirming and fun and loving and pleasurable. And so I think if that is ultimately one of the goals for our kids, we need to start thinking about how we can help them step towards that. And I don't think that abstinence-only education will help them achieve that kind of relationship. Yeah, I would agree with you. Okay, so let's, let's you know, get right into it. I mean, you are teaching these kids. They are in high school. Um, a lot of parents will say, well, why are we teaching kids about sexuality in high school? That's really up to the parents. Of course, it may be up to the parents, but most parents, I don't think, do it well. So let's Step into your classroom. What do you do? How do you, you know, what is, what's the focus? What have you been doing for the past, what, 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. Um, sure. Well, you know, in my classroom, uh, my class is called Sexuality and Society. And the first thing we start with, actually, is a conversation about values. And do we know why we do what we do? Do we know what we believe about sex and where that comes from? Because if we don't know why we do what we do and what we believe, it's really hard to make good decisions. 
We talk about language. How do we talk about sex with our parents, with our doctors, with our sweethearts? Um, and then we start looking at a lot of different topics in human sexuality, gender, sexual orientation, sexual behavior, um, and, and look at them from a lot of different perspectives. So this morning in class, we're talking about uh, gender as a social construct, and we did an activity. We, I broke them up into the boys in one group, the girls in another group. They wrote down the five things they think is best about being their gender, the five things that's hardest about being their gender, and if they could be the other gender for a week, what are five things they would do? And it led to this incredible discussion where we got to really look at the pressures and assumptions that young people feel based upon gender scripts and yeah, how that helps and gets in the way. Yeah. Al, so what were yeah. some of those? What were some of the responses well, from the students? Sure. So some of the, some of the things that, um, that the, the young women liked best about being women was, you know, the ability to be mothers. That always comes up on the list. They liked that they actually felt like they had more control over sexual situations than, than boys did. Um, they liked that uh, they are able to, how did they say it? I think they said they're more able to um, get what they want, and that was a little hard for them to define further. You know, the boys said that they liked being thought of as in charge, that they, they liked that they um, didn't have to give birth. Um, they, it's often, the boys' list often is about what they don't, their best list is often about what's bad about being a girl. So no periods, no giving birth, things like that. Um, but then what was hard for them, you know, the boys said it's really hard to be expected to be ready at any moment for sex and to be expected to want it at every moment. And the young women said that one of the worst things about being young women is, is feeling like that they're not safe all the time in the world. Um, so really deep stuff that we could have incredible conversations about. Now, were you talking to? Were you doing this separately, the boys and the girls, or did you bring them together? Are, are, are they because you said they, you broke they, them up? They, yeah, they wrote their lists separately, but then we all came together in class to have the conversation. We shared the lists together, and then we we had our conversation. We began our conversation. We'll continue it for the next couple of days in in class. Okay. So now, after you that, where does that lead to? I mean, what, this is was this a class? Right. Was this the, yeah. This is, this is the beginning of, of talking about gender as a social construct and looking at the ways we create assumptions about behavior based on gender and, you know, where does that create um, benefit for us, but where does it create inequity and where does it create assumptions that actually limit our being our authentic selves. One of the things I really stress in my class is that a sexually healthy person, uh, first and foremost, is is their authentic self, that they're not putting on a mask or acting in a role, that they're living their lives based upon what's real for them. And sometimes these, these gender scripts can, can get in the way of that. And so we look at that. And then kids can make choices about that. It's not my job to tell them what to believe, what to feel, or what to do. Uh, that's, that's, their, that's their task to figure out. But my job is to help them examine all the factors and have the skills to make deliberate and thoughtful decisions. And that's what I want to do with them. So what you're helping them to do is understand them, 
ourselves? Is that what you're saying as sexual Absolutely. beings and what their values or their core values are or how they're even related to their family values? How does that fit in? Because I would assume in your class you have a, a variety of kids from different backgrounds um, and they themselves identify differently in terms of, of gender and sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. And how does that all fit into the picture? Absolutely. You know, one of the, and one of the fundamental ground rules of my class is that you get to express who you are and you bring your values to class and you bring yourself to the classroom and we create a space where everybody gets heard and respected. So we, we absolutely have differences of opinion and we absolutely come from different value uh, settings, different family settings. And what we do is recognize that that's a, that's a great strength and how do we use that to learn from each other. Um, you know, you, earlier you talked about parents, and I totally believe that parents are and should be the primary sexuality educators of their kids. And so, you know, homework in my class is often to go home and talk to your parents about this and, and try to have a conversation and see, see if we can create more conversations in families um, about healthy sexuality, because I think that would be only to the benefit for our young people. It seems to me, though, that most parents or many parents, and this is my perspective as a social worker, uh, have a lot of difficulty talking to their kids, their children, about sex because they themselves are not comfortable with with their issues, their sexual issues surrounding sexuality. So then how can you expect them to be able to impart, you know, a good understanding of uh, sexual issues or morals or whatever it is or just practical things to their children because they themselves... Sure are not able to do that? How do you bring them into the sort of classroom? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, in part, that's why I wrote the book, that helped to help parents become more comfortable and confident. I think, I think two things are essential when, when, in my experience, when talking and working with parents. One is to get them to shift their paradigm from seeing sex from the disaster model where all it is, sex just becomes opportunities for one disaster after another, as opposed to looking at sexuality as a fundamental force for good in, in our lives. Um, with that paradigm shift, it's easier to talk. And secondly, it's helping them recognize that their kids, themselves, we all, are sexual beings from the minute we're born to the minute we die, and that integrating sexuality into the larger aspects of our life is actually much more healthy than separating and segregating it and pushing it off into a corner. You're right. Parents don't get training in how to be sex educators. Um, but so what we need to do with, with parents is to help them understand that um, that is a role that, that is important for them to fulfill, that they can do it, and that largely what their job is you know, I think years ago, parents often worried that, well, what if I don't know the information? What if my kid asks me a question and I don't have the answer? Today, the information is readily available. What kids need is context for the information. So really helpful conversations that parents and kids can have is, how do you think about um, when you're ready for sexual activity? Or what does it mean to fall in love with somebody? Or what are all the different ways you can get close to somebody? Um, and putting it in their own value context. Al, I mean, you were to, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, we're talking about 14 to 18-year-olds. 
So when these kids come into your class, 14-year-olds, I mean, do you have any idea how many of them are sexually active before they're even taking your class? I mean, in, in terms of high school students, are there statistics right. that, you're, that you are privy to? There are statistics. I, I do not ask my students um, any questions about their own sexual behavior. That's, that's none of my business, and that's not what my class is about. Um, wh- what we do know nationally is that kids coming into high school, about 75% of them have not had vaginal intercourse. So the vast majority of ninth grade uh, high school students have not experienced sexual intercourse we know that by the time they graduate in 12th grade, that number has reversed, and well over half, as many as 75% of them, have experienced vaginal intercourse. When you add in the next, the first couple years of college, when kids are 19, the vast majority have had sexual intercourse for the first time. So it's a process, and you know, I think that talking to kids about these issues before they've actually made decisions to get sexually active is so much more useful than after the fact. And I've had kids tell me that, you know, the 12th graders have said to me, Mr. V, you've got to put that in when you talk to your ninth graders, because that's something that we really needed to know before we were in these situations, having to make these decisions. Um, And I think often the fear is that if we talk to kids before they're sexually active, that's just going to make them sexually active. My experience is that that actually makes them much more deliberate, much more thoughtful, and much more careful about what they about the decisions they make because they know what they want. Do you talk about specifics in terms of STDs, getting pregnant, birth control? Sure. Sure, all of those are are really important topics and and the way that I approach STDs and and pregnancy, um, you know, those those negative consequences of sexual activity is what do we do to to avoid or minimize the chances for those. So yes, I want them, you know, I don't show gross pictures of syphilis to my class. That's not effective education. Uh, But what I do, what we do do is talk about how do you become an expert on your own body? How do you become the person who knows what is normal for your body, what it looks like, what it feels like, how it reacts, and then how are you able to tell when something might be not right with your body and feel empowered to take that to somebody who can help you with that. So it's, well, it's I think you use the word empower. Empower is really the key word. You're empowering these students with information and knowledge so that they are able to make good choices for themselves. I want to switch Absolutely. a little bit because I know sure. you're, you're a gay man. You're married. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a husband. Um, what about the students, the, the gay students and the mm-hmm. straight students and now even the transgendered students? Like, do, that, I mean, that, do they have different issues? Do they bring that to the classroom, your classroom? How does that work? Sure. Well, yes, you're right that I teach in a school where being an openly gay teacher is, is not a big deal, and I'm not the only one. There are several of us here on our faculty. Um, so yeah, kids are, kids are free to disclose or not in the, in the class. The, the ground rule is that you get to decide how much you want to share and at what level. Uh, there are certainly kids who are, who identify as, as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender in our school, and some of them are in the class. And yeah, some of the issues are different. And I think what, what has been really amazing is to watch high school kids have conversations with one another when they're actually not all the same. And for a straight kid to be able to ask a kid who is lesbian or, or bisexual or gay, so wait, help me understand how this 
is different for you. And for, for kids who are LGB to be able to say to straight kids, wait a minute, do you recognize that what you're saying comes from a huge amount of privilege? And so we have these incredible conversations that build bridges to understanding. Yeah, some of their needs are different, sure, and, um, but that's, all of our needs are different, and that's all for the good when we can talk about those and try to create understanding. Yeah, well, that's an incredible opportunity for your students. I think that's mm-hmm. great. I mean, um, what, uh, and I just have to tell you, I just, I just won a major award. I'm very, as a social worker okay. at our Pride Center for Straight But Not Narrow. This was the award I got for the Love year. It. So, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> yes, very proud of that. But anyway, um, okay. Um, you know, one of the things about the the internet. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think you sure. said, you know, the kids have this information. Like, if they want to know about birth control or their bodies or yeah. the physiology or the biology, or any of that stuff, it's out there. They can get that information. Uh, but what about some of the stuff that these kids are doing, and, and and or is this exaggerated in the media? Sending pictures of their body parts to each other, or to and you know, getting or you know, their is that something that that's prevalent, that's happening, or, and how they actually use the internet for mm-hmm. um, actually for um, I guess interacting with one another sexually. Sure. Sure. Yes. I mean, that stuff actually does happen. There is, there is sexting, sending sexually explicit either words or pictures um, over, over the Internet, over their cell phones. Um, they're using applications like Snapchat to make uh, little videos and, and share them with one another. So we talk a lot in class about this idea of privacy, about the idea of, you know, what is that about when you want to send a picture of yourself to somebody else? Most of the kids that, that I work with have been pretty clear that when this sexting thing happens, it actually doesn't happen randomly. It often happens between sweethearts, between kids who are in a relationship with one another. Um, and that may just be particular to the kids that I'm, that I'm teaching, because uh, I do know it does happen more globally um, as well out in society. Yeah, and, you know, kids have a really different sense of what privacy means today than what, than what we did growing up. And helping them understand that when you press the send button, you've really got to be ready for the whole world to see it. And if you don't want the whole world to see it, then maybe you don't press the send button. Those are important conversations to have. Helping them understand what kind of intimacy can you develop with somebody in an online setting, how is that similar or different to the intimacy that you can develop in a face-to-face interaction. Um, and helping them really challenge them, challenging them to say, when are you using this online stuff as a substitute for the hard work of really having face-to-face conversations about real things? So I think those are the conversations that we're having. And also, of course, excuse me, we have to talk about Internet pornography because so many of our kids today are accessing it, are seeing it, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so any conversation about healthy sexuality has to include what do you do when you see that? How do you make how do you make sense of that? And I always talk about internet porn that it's like an action movie. You wouldn't go to see, you know, the Terminator in the movies and come out of the film and think that you could actually live your life that way. You know that that's a constructed reality. That's a fantasy, and that's how that's how I talk about internet pornography. That so what are some facing, of the reactions that you get from the students? I mean, you know, internet pornography is out yeah. there. I would make yeah. the assumption, obviously, that they are watching it. So um, what's their response? Talk to us a little bit about some of the sure. discussion that you've had with them specifically. 
Sure. Some of the kids, when I, when I say to them, you know, real sex doesn't work like that, some of them are amazed. They, they, of course they think real sex works like that because, look, there's people having sex on the screen. That must be what real sex looks like. Um, and to say to them that, well, no, actually, let's, let's look at, and we don't, of course, we don't look at Internet pornography in my classroom. That's, that's beyond the bounds of what I think I, I would even want to do in my classroom. But talking about it with them and saying, well, how can that be real when there's a camera on? How can that be real when, when we're seeing, you know, cuts in the same way you would see it in an action movie? How can it be real when you know it's a performance? And so some of them are, are shocked and amazed to hear that. Some of them are very relieved to hear that. Some of them think, well, then, well, then why, are, why are people showing us this? Why is this out there? And talking about its use as fantasy or something like that. So the range of, of reactions is, is really huge because kids are at very different places. But to get them to understand that um, they have to be critical consumers of the information that's coming into them, that they can't just be passive consumers and let this stuff wash over them, that they get to ask questions about it, that they get to um, make decisions about it, and that they really can say, huh, this really isn't anything like reality, and so I have to put it in that context. That's been huge and hugely helpful for kids. Al, what about the students? You've been doing this for 20 years. Have you seen a change in terms of the level of sophistication of these kids because now that they do have access to the Internet? And then I'm also thinking, you know, I know when the kids are younger and the uh, parents put these blocks on their computers so that they can only see certain things, but suddenly you get in high school, are they still doing that, or do most kids in high school have access to whatever information they want? Most of the kids, yeah. yeah, most of the kids have pretty unfettered access because even if their parents are putting blocks on computers at home, you know, they have their cell phones, they have their friends' computers, they have, we can't, we actually can't um, block kids' access to this. We, we have to assume that kids are able to see, to see all of it. Um, in terms of how they're, how they're different, you know, what I'm always struck by is how similar they are, that 20 years ago kids were asking me, how do you know if you're ready for sex? How do you know if you're in love? That's the same thing kids are asking me today. Twenty years ago, kids were asking me, how do I feel good about my body? It's the same questions they're asking today. So the, in terms of the sophistication, um, you know, I think that, that the, the digital world and social media has changed the way kids think about relationships and talk about relationships and figuring out what does it mean to have an online relationship. That's a new thing. But a lot of the basic questions are still really about am I normal? Is this okay? I have this body. What do I do with it? Um, and that's, that's very, you know, in some ways gratifying to me because it shows us that we basically all just want to be good human beings and, and healthy in our sexuality. And, and that's, uh, that's, what, that's what it's all about for me is helping kids achieve healthy sexuality. Yeah, and healthy sexuality, that's a, that's a huge term because I'm thinking mm-hmm. about, I, I know when, when, and not necessarily from my own family, but just in school and the information we had, it was always sex was equated with love. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I mean, you can have good sex and not be in love with somebody. I don't know what you teach, what, how that comes up in your classroom. I'd like to sure. get your feedback on that because I think yeah. that's kind of a, for me, it's, it's a false premise. That's not really true. And so, you know, especially with, perhaps with girls, that, you know, you're not going to have sex with anybody unless you love them or unless you're married to them, unless you're in a committed relationship. You know, I put question marks beside all of those. So 
Yeah, and in my class, one of the things we talk about is the difference between passion, intimacy, romance, and commitment. And, you know, what you might be, and so figuring out what is it that you really want. Are you looking for a simple body-to-body connection? Okay, what does that mean? How would you achieve that? What are the pluses and minuses to that? Are you looking for a real connection on an emotional level or on a, on a um, sort of a heart-to-heart connection? Are you looking for a relationship that is going to be ongoing? So, and of course, all of those things have, we approach them differently. To say this blanket statement that sex only comes with love is not a helpful statement for kids because, first of all, love means a million different things. So helping kids differentiate. And, you know, I've had kids tell me, and this is always really sad, that, you know, the reason why they had sex with somebody was because they had no other way to figure out how to express their caring or concern for them. We need to give kids lots of options for expressing care and concern and pleasure and connection. And then they can actually choose what's appropriate in a given situation. Sometimes they do want to have pleasure for the sake of pleasure. If they want that, we've got to help them figure out what does that mean? What does that get us? How do we make that? Um, you know, can that be a healthy choice and what would that look like? So those are some of the conversations we have in my class. Do you ever, what kind of feed, do you ever get like negative feedback from parents or upset or how do you handle that? Because you know when you, the topic of sex, no matter sure. where it is or how it's taught, brings up all kinds of issues. Obviously, so yeah. you know here you are with their kids and and uh, the children go home and they have a different interpretation maybe of what went on in the classroom. So is there has you actually yeah, been, I, can, yeah. I don't get any I haven't ever gotten negative responses to what I do from from parents in my classroom partly because. I really have an open door policy for parents. They can come to class, they can see the materials, they are they're they're they can be as intimately involved in the class and the material as they want to be. And so there's no secrets here. I'm partnering with them with the with the idea of helping their kids become authentic and healthy and, and, and well. So, you know, parents have really been very supportive and very positive about my work. And I think it's because I approach it in this way that I'm partnering with you. Um, and I want to help you express your own values to the kids. It's not about my values. It's about helping kids figure out what are their family values, what are their own values, and and how do they use those to make decisions. So they're probably very relieved to have you there, I would imagine. <laughs> but um, yes. yeah, and transparency, that's what you're saying. It's it's yeah. being trans yeah. And they're relieved, but I also you know, they often say things like, Well, thank God you're gonna talk to my kids, I don't have to and it's like, No, no, no. Yeah. I'm talking to your kids, but you have to as well. Like we have to do this together. So you're doing it together. You've created this, I mean, this wonderful classroom situation, I guess. Is anybody doing what you're doing, or do you teach other educators to be able to take this? Because to mm-hmm. me it seems, well, obviously your book is going to do that for educators as well as for parents. And I want to mention mm-hmm. For Goodness Sex is the name of the book. And uh, uh, the author is Al Vernaccio. That's who we're talking to today. But anyway, so have you been... Approach? Do you go around the country? Because it seems to me your model is like really something that we all should be talking about. Thank you. I, I think so. Yes, I do go around to other uh, schools and universities and and give lectures and talk. I do. I do write. Um, and there are other people who are doing comprehensive, progressive, positive sexuality education. Um, you know, and we're, we're often not getting the attention. Um, out there in the world, but but there are lots of people doing this really good work, and my job is to help us do more of it and and make it more accessible, so that uh, so that we can raise a, a healthier generation of kids than 
than perhaps we got, you know, in terms of the information we got and the way we were, we were brought up around sex. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, the way I was, I mean, this was many years ago. I mean, we had a, a uh, I don't know, a teacher, a home ec teacher teaching, mm-hmm. and, you know, where the girls and the boys were separated, and you had a home ec teacher kind of giving you, I don't even know if it was the basic facts. Most of it was all this uh, negative, whatever it was. There wasn't a lot yeah. of positive stuff. So um, I think this is a huge leap forward. Absolutely. Um, One yeah. of the things I would say quickly is that is that I think it really is important to have trained sexuality educators in schools. You know, often it is relegated to the home ec teacher or the phys ed teacher or the health teacher who are very good and well-meaning people. But I have a master's degree in human sexuality education, and I think if you want if you want an expert to teach your child math or science or English or foreign language, we also want to have good trained people in the classroom who can do this work and do it do it professionally because that's that's what our kids need that's what they deserve well now you were trained you have your as you say masters in education mm-hmm. in human sexuality university of pennsylvania mm-hmm. is uh, how many actual universities and colleges we only have a minute left where are there that you can get this kind of training there are more out there than you would imagine, and one of the best I would plug is Widener University here in Pennsylvania, which has a master's and doctoral program doing phenomenal work and turning out lots of great professional sexuality educators. So it's out there. It's a matter of schools making it a priority. Wonderful. It's been great having you on the show today. Um, I can see why your classroom is, or your <laughs> classrooms are so popular. Uh, for goodness, sex. Um, you can get for goodness sex online, bookstores everywhere, I assume. Health Absolutely. educator Al Vernaccio. Thank you so thank much you. for your time. I really enjoyed talking yeah, to you. Thank you so much, Al. We're going to take a short break. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. 
Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Gloria Walther, founder of the... Uh, Walther School, which is in California, and her new, well, she has a, it's a series, uh, her book is called Eye to Eye, the Handbook on Lovingly and Successfully Parenting Your Three to Five-Year-Old Child, uh, referred to as the handbook that didn't come with them. Um, Eye to Eye teaches parents how to be the happy and loving parents they truly want to be. Dr. Walter received her doctorate from USC and has been using her expertise to train preschool teachers and directors for 17 years. And uh, I was online uh, looking at some of her testimonials, and L.A. City Mom describes Eye to Eye as a must-read. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Walter. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you. Well, you've had a lot of experience, obviously, um, Ph.D. in, in education. Uh, you've been doing this for 30 years. Te- thir- three to, to five- 40 at this time. <laughs> oh, 40. Okay, 40 years. Yes, I um, think I've got another 20 years in me, Catherine. <laughs> maybe even more. Who knows? Perhaps, yes. Okay, so the, your book is described as the handbook on lovingly and successfully parenting your three- to five-year-old child. Well, I mean, what makes your, first of all, what makes the book unique? Why do parents need this kind of book? You know, you think it's three to five year olds, they're cute, they're not babies anymore, but they're uh, toddlers, and then of course five even older, some ready for school. So, um, what do parents really need to know to parent three to five year olds? You know, I think the most important message is to just realize that this child who's three years old now, in the last three years they've decoded the language, they figured out how to walk. They've gathered all this information, and they're doing so much in those three years. And I always look at a three-year-old that I'm first meeting and just think, wow, you have accomplished so much more than I have in the last three years. I don't think there's any other time in your life that you get, you actually accomplish so very much. So I come to a three-year-old with real awe and real respect. That's the, that's the first moment that I meet a three-year-old, and I think parents, bless their hearts, they've had the baby and they've had the no sleep and they've had the, the crying and figuring out what they need and all that stuff, and so by the time they're three, I think they're already into a pattern of fixing, helping, you know, mending, making sure they're okay, but this three-year-old is emerging with these thoughts and these ideas and these personalities, and what the three-year-old really wants is to be heard, to be listened to to be respected, and to be honored. And the way parents can do that, in a nutshell, is um, just asking them a lot of questions and giving them choices. I think in the day-to-day, there's, it's typically easy to dictate and, and control or, or do this, do this, do this, do this, whereas would you rather put on your left shoe or your right shoe first? 
really comes to a three-year-old with such a, a, a great amount of respect and honoring that they just kind of laugh and go, well, this foot, you know. And so throughout the day, there's so many opportunities that you can show respect to this young child and give them choices. In so, the, uh, Dr. Ahead. Walther, but yes. what, what, the parents, what are, what are the issues that, that you say they want to sort of control, you're saying, they don't take the leap from, you know, a two-and-a-half-year-old is different than a three-year-old, let's say, in terms of developmentally. And so what, parents get frustrated because they're trying to control their kids, telling them what to do, and then the children misbehave, and so that brings up, that's the issue, that's the problem, because the parents don't really get down eye-to-eye on their level and try to connect with them, and that creates, what, misbehavior in the kids? Well, I think the children just want to be heard, so they will do whatever's necessary to be heard. So if it's misbehaving or um, behaving in ways the parents are not hoping for, then they get a lot of attention and they get, the parents will get um, more upset and the child has more control in that exchange. So what's really good is for a parent to just stop for a minute and get down on their eye level and just ask them questions. So... Uh, for example, there was a parent who told me that the other night they went to dinner out with some friends and the children, uh, their, their son was acting really crazy, like just doing all sorts of behavior in the restaurant. And they were getting ready to just grab their child and t- tuck him under their arms and run out to the car. And they stopped and they go, oh, no, 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 I don't have to do that. I've read Gloria's book. So this dad got down on his knees and looked directly into his four-year-old's eyes and said, Logan, what is it you need this very moment? And this child who had been acting completely out of control looked at his dad and said, you know what, Daddy, I'm just really tired. Take your jacket and make me a little nest there in the booth. And the child went over and climbed into the booth like a little kitten, just curled up and went to sleep. And that's not in my book. So what has happened because of the book the parent took the information and adapted it to his own situation that seemed completely out of control to him and was able to directly talk to his child and be able to get an answer, not from the emotional side of the brain, but from the intellect. And so the child was able to just convey his needs and easily met and easily solved. So that's what I'm talking about is, is situations where there's like, the parent thinks, oh, I've got to fix this and I've got to take care of this right now. And the child is just in the emotional state, just not able to make any thought or decision. And so if you can ask a child a question that moves them from the emotion into the intellect and you get a child with a really great answer, a really great, great uh, solution for the problem. Yeah, and I think what often happens is, as you're describing that kind of a situation, is the parent gets caught up in the moment of reacting, almost like a three-year-old themselves, and gets <laughs> into that kind of chaotic emotional reaction. And um, if they just take a few seconds more, it doesn't take too much more time, although one thinks so when it's happening, mm-hmm. um, you, you, you get a scenario like you just described. It's not always easy to do that. That's why we have to read your book or why parents need to read your book, <laughs> Eye to Eye. Yeah. Um, I do have to ask you a question, though. I sometimes see parents, and uh, I'm in New York City, uh, and, and I see these parents who I sometimes feel, and I come from a different generation, more your generation, they seem to be 
so much so catering to their kids when it's time for the parent to take responsibility and say, you know, you'll be in a restaurant and, the, you know, the, the four-year-old is taking control of, of, of the dinner by not knowing what they want to order and the parent is kind of encouraging them and giving them 20 choices. And, and at some point I want to say, you know what, you're the parent. You really need to take maybe give them two choices but not ten choices because this puts is elevating them to a level that they shouldn't be at. Can you respond to that? Absolutely, Catherine. Yeah. Wonderful question, because I agree. I think that if the child is running the show, then the child is really giving, being given too much responsibility. And that's if you're three or four or five, you don't want to decide what movie you're watching and what you're having for dinner and all those things. I'm not instigating that. I mean that when you give a child two choices for a pro, you know, and both the choices are acceptable to you, um, then the child gets to make the choice and feel they have some power, but they don't need 17 choices, and they don't need to be always referred to as the one who's making all the decisions in the family. But when they're given one or two, you know, just a couple of choices, then they feel power, and what happens is they become very um, self-controlled. And if it makes sense to them, if the three-year-old, if you take enough time to explain the, the, the reasoning, uh, and then you give them the choices, then what you have is a child who's very agreeable because they've been in on making a decision. But giving them control of the family, that's the opposite of what I'm talking about. Okay. That's not what I'm talking about at all. So. Well, let's talk about the difference between three- and five-year-olds now, because uh, okay. there's a huge difference. Um, I raised three boys, now they're in their 30s, but uh, a three-year-old and a five-year-old are very different. Five-year-olds go to school, preschool, even some t- kindergarten, sometimes mm-hmm. even first grade. Mm-hmm. So that's a wide range in yeah. terms of yeah. the skills that I think parents need to be able, you know, dealing with each one of that, that, that age group developmentally. Right. Well, the three-year-old basically, that, at my school I take children at three and they leave here to go to kindergarten, so that's my, that's my three to five range. That's what I'm good at. Um, the three-year-old I take because when you're two and a half, it's appropriate to see me, mine, and now because you're cutting the cord and you're making all those clarities between what you were before as an infant and what you're becoming now as an independent person. And so they're busy drawing all those lines and cutting those cords and, and all of that. So, but at three, that's when the logic kicks in. And so in my school, for example, we can say you can have any, any child can have whatever they want, but they have to say the other child's name, may I please have the bike when you're finished with it, and then, um, then once they ask for that in that manner, um, then they are, they're going to get it. It might be tomorrow. It might be later. Um, but when you ask, may I please have it when you're finished, that's, that's the kind of the, the way to get things. And, and so then the child on the bicycle has the responsibility also. They have the responsibility to say, yes, I will give it to you when I'm finished. And then they, they must say, uh, they must call that first child and say, it's your turn to have the bike now. So, for example, then if another child comes up to the child on the bike, then they say, can I please have the bike when you're finished? The child say, no, you have to go and ask Mary because Mary asked me first. So because the logic kicks in at three, they're able to carry this two, three, four levels deep. They can ask, you know, there'll be five children waiting for a bike, but they're off doing other things because they know they're going to be called. So basically what you're doing is you're setting up trust and you're setting up responsibility 
and you're set, setting up situations where children can then self-regulate. And this does begin at three because they get the language and they see they want it and they see how to get it. They won't get it if they kick or if they pull or they grab the bike. That's how you don't get things. But if you ask nicely, you will get it, but it might be a little later. Can I give you one example that happened really, that's a really fine example? Yeah, go ahead. So <clears throat> the other day there was a, a little girl named Madeline, and she had this pretend ice cream cone made of wood. It was a vanilla-looking ice cream cone. And she walked up to one of my teachers and said, Hey, Brenda, would you like to have some coconut ice cream? Which is really hilarious to me because Brenda hates coconut. I, on the other hand, love coconut. So I ran across the room and really excited about this coconut ice cream. And I said, Oh, Madeline, I would so love... And Brenda's saying, no, thank you. I said, I would so love that coconut ice cream. And Madeline turned to me and said, she's four years old, she turned to me and said, we're completely out of coconut ice cream, but you will be the first one tomorrow to get it. And that was the first time I've ever had that experience when someone told me I couldn't really have it right then, but I could have it tomorrow and I'd be first. And it just made me feel so safe and so happy and so completely good that I knew tomorrow I'd be getting the ice cream. And so the very next day, she walked into school, and she gave me, she, just, she looked at me, and she put her finger up, said, I'll be right with you. She went and put the complete costume on again, and then came over to me with the ice cream, and she said, here is your coconut ice cream. So the value in this is that children at a very early age can learn persistence. They can learn patience. They can learn to be respectful, and they can be respected and be honored with all of these ways of, of showing them um, how, to, how to really get what you want, but in a really appropriate, socially acceptable way. And, and learning about delayed gratification, but I'm thinking about your students, your five-year-olds, then going into a regular kindergarten class, for yep. instance. Um, it would seem to me that they would be many levels above many of the other students, and how do they fare? I mean, I know how some of them fare because you have so many testimonials from your <laughs> students who have gone to college, graduate school, law school, who come yeah. back to see you and talk to you and love you. So, uh, but but really specifically because if they're, I guess the word sophisticated, emotionally sophisticated yeah. comes to mind, and so they get to class and you know they're surrounded with probably kids who are not on their level. Then what happens? You know that old, uh, it's just so great to be the guy that is emotionally secure uh, because you have, you can then be gracious and you can be sharing and you can be helpful. So my students are very solution-oriented because anytime there's a conflict, we'll go, oh, what's the solution for this problem? And we'll sit and we'll gather and we'll, it trumps all other behavior in the room. It's like, okay, oh, oh, we've got a conflict, oh, we've got a problem, who can help us solve this problem? So... They're solution-oriented, and they go into these other classrooms as they graduate. And many of the schools that my children go to, the, the admissions directors and the principals go, I want more of your students because they're the ones who will come in and help children solve problems. They'll come in, and they'll notice a child sitting by themselves, and they'll just quietly go and sit beside them and not grab them or try to pull them out of anything, but just be near them. And so... I think that when you do have this awareness and this comfort of being so kind and so so many experiences of, of helping others, that I don't think it pulls you down. I think it lifts everyone else up. And so 
even though they'll see someone who acts a certain way, they'll go, this is a person I, don't, I can't trust, and I don't want to spend time with that person. I'm going to go over here. Or maybe this is a person I can help. But they really do reach out, and they really do help other children in these other settings. So it's not you, a, you know, you talk about the trust, and this is kind of a real, a real world, I guess, situation that has just occurred in the past few years, unfortunately, and it's uh, resulting from you know horrific situations in the school system. And I was just talking to a teacher the other day, and they have a routine. They have these uh, what they the, the lockdowns, the practice lockdowns in the schools. The, you know, I don't several times a year, and I, they start with doing it in kindergarten. Uh, making the kids go into the room and lock the doors and hide under the desk or hide in the closet, those kinds of things. And uh, I asked her, what do the kids, you know, how do they respond or how do they react to that? And she said, well, in the early grades, which would be say, some of the, the, your, the, your students going in as mm-hmm. kindergartners or first grade, we don't tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. We don't tell them that they're hiding in the closet because there might be somebody out there with a gun or a knife who is going to come and hurt them. We tell them that maybe there's a hurricane or maybe there's a, you know some kind of a um, you know a tornado, and so we have you know that's why we're doing it. We're practicing because there may be some her- storm that happens. Mm-hmm. And I said, so you, at what point then do you tell them the truth? Well, they don't start telling them the truth until they're ten years old. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular teacher had, uh, I think, eight, seven or eight-year-olds in her class. I, I just, it kind of blew me away, and I thought, well, here you are, an educator. I have to ask you, what's your response to that? And I don't know if this is something that's just in this particular school system or it's the way they're teaching these kids. And, you know, I mean, the, the realities are horrific, but don't you have to be honest? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, Catherine. That's a, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think honesty is really important, but I also think children need to feel safe and secure. So my take would be um, at this three-year-old level, I'm not sure I would tell them that there was, you know, this imminent danger of guns and, and weapons. I would be more inclined to say, we are going to practice so that we can always keep you safe. And under any circumstances, we would make sure that you are safe. And sometimes I'll say to a child, you know why? Your, you know, your mother and father looked all over Los Angeles for school that they could really trust to keep you safe. And this is the school they chose. And so different, different things come up, and I'll say, my most important job is to keep you safe. And I think the very, very young children, I would be more focused on keeping them safe from any kind of harm and maybe not go into guns and weaponry, but I don't know quite, you know, my, my specialty is like up to five, and I think I would keep them focused on the safety thing, and then the parents individually, if they felt it was important to talk about what specifically they were um, keeping them from, then that would be more of an, a family affair. And I think a lot, if I were to sit in the classroom and talk about guns and weapons and why I'm doing this, is because there might be a man out there that has a gun, then it would stir up a lot of nightmares and concerns that would um, would not be necessary at this time, I think, for three to five for sure. I don't know about the older ages, Catherine. I don't know exactly what age I would tell a child. I think it would be more not a chronological age but a maturation, that if I felt the child wanted to know the truth about the world and that they were ready for it, I would tell my child that way. But I think in terms of 
school dictating and and telling when when uh, it, it could be a bit of a, a ball of wax to decide when you know what age you would actually tell them specifically what they're what they're hiding from. Yeah, I, I just I have a difficulty because with dishonesty, and I think and, and we were having I was having this discussion with a young teacher. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm in a different generation, and I said when you know when we were in school. And we were in elementary school, and they told us to hide under our desks because the Russians were coming, and we were going to get a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. They told they actually told us the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, even though that really wasn't the truth, but it was, <laughs> I know what is the truth. I mean, have yeah, to, what is the truth? Go there first, didn't, don't we? <laughs> yeah, uh, but we accepted it. That was it, you know. Yeah. And 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 we weren't, uh, you know, rendered helpless or uh, by it. So. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get your take on that. Cause, yeah, I uh, believe in the truth also, Kathy. Yeah. I just think I would be more focused on telling them what makes them feel safe. Yeah. So that's where I'd go. Yeah. It's in the context of where you're telling them the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've been, you've been described as a child whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I'm honored by that. I just yeah. think that's so lovely. But I do really listen well, as do you. Um, and, it, and when a person, whether they're three or forty-seven, is listened to, they just have a just to feel respected and honored, and and are more open to sharing things. And so, I um, I do I do love to hear what they have to say. I think they have the answers to the universe. And so I'm always asking them questions. Do you get a lot of frustrated parents who, I mean, I, I, I was um, reading through some of the testimonials that, that your students have given to you. One of them was the father of five. You know, I mean, today things are, uh, parents are, you know, both parents are working, five children, well, in this case, or mm-hmm. you have three, four, five children, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes the goal is just to get what you have to get done, and you, it, I mean, the response can be, I don't have a time to get down on the floor with my child and look at them and talk to them eye to eye. I've just got to, I have to feed them and get them off to school and, uh, you know, do the basics. Um, I I understand that, but you know what's really, really great uh, is to just spend, even if you have 10 minutes each day that you sit down with your child and read with them, but, you know, like if if your time is from 6.30 to 7, you know, you have... 6.30 6.30 to 6.45, you know, you've had dinner and you're getting, it's pre-bed and all that. But if there's a moment sometime during the day that you have 10 minutes to sit down, you turn the phone off, you turn the TV off, you turn all the stuff off, and you just look at your child and say, I am totally yours. And what's a really great thing to do is call it something like, this is our, this is our uh, Phoebe time, or just make up a word, you know, just make up a fun word. This is our connectedy time. And then while you're tying their shoes in the morning, you can, go, you can whisper, I loved our Kennedy time last night, or I loved our whatever time. Um, and then as you're getting, locking them in their seatbelts to take them off to school, then you go, tomorrow or tonight, why don't we do, you know, let's, let's talk about what we're going to, let's think about what we're going to do tonight. And Remember two nights ago when we read that book? Or do you remember when we built that building? And, and just moments that you can whisper in their ear, that you're thinking about them and you're thinking about the time you had together and that you prize that time. 
That's so that it's those moments. We only have a minute left, but so okay. it's those moment. But it's those moments of connecting is what you're saying, and, exactly. and that doesn't take a long time. It doesn't, it doesn't have take to, two hours a day. It no, it doesn't. It's a just moment those, and a whisper. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you today, and I, I want to Dr. Gloria Walther, who is founder of the Walther School in California. Her book is Eye to Eye: The Handbook on Lovingly and Successfully Parenting Your Three to Five Year Old Child. The handbook that didn't come with them. So uh, just. Two seconds, what website can we go to to get more information about you and the book? Oh, it's just my name at Amazon.com, and you'll see eye to eye. It'll pop right up. Great. It was uh, eye-opening to talk to you today. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure, Catherine. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. We uh, are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and... We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.